This is a Stimulus Network podcast. The Cosmic Shed. Hello and welcome to The Cosmic Shed. Today's episode is all about the Mandalorian. Bounty hunting is a complicated profession. Don't you agree? I'm Andrew, and with me today are... Time and Sing, also known as the Timalorian. <laughs> and... Steve, also known as the Child. <laughs> um, how are you both? You okay, Steve? Let's start with you. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. It's been a been a funny year, but uh, there's been some good telly to make up for it. That, 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 that is definitely the case. There's been some really good telly. As it currently stands... At the weekend, if you to kind of do it, you know, you don't have to watch them as they come out. You can do Friday night Mandalorian or Discovery, vice versa, Saturday night, and then His Dark Material Sunday night. I mean, just brilliant. So we were going to record this um, a little while ago, but uh, unfortunately, uh, I broke my leg um, <laughs> in, in one of the ponds near the Cosmic Shed. I broke my leg and I have voicemail messages from Ty giving me abuse because I wasn't there for the recording because <laughs> I was in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. Where are you, Glenda? Me and Steve are waiting for you aboard. How dare you interrupt our nothing time? Yeah, hope there hasn't been a fire. Uh, to your life. Bye. <laughs> we, we were sat there wondering what was going on and, and we, we did say it's unlike... Andrew, to be late for a Cosmic yeah. Shed recording. Yeah. I hope nothing bad has happened. Yeah, so basically dislocated my ankle, dislocated and broken my ankle. Um, so that's why this podcast isn't, uh, well, it wasn't out until now. And it, the other reason <laughs> it's, uh, well, the other problem with this podcast is I kind of build it as being about the Mandalorian and Discovery. I was, we're going to do a Mando disco. <laughs> but to be honest, the Mandalorian finished season two and it's just too magnificent so it gets an episode all to itself we might talk about discovery but anyway that ty just to kick us off oh no hang on also in this episode is friend of the shed who first appeared on our um, episode on arrival seth shostak senior astronomer at seti the search for extraterrestrial intelligence what does a senior astronomer do for the SETI Institute, Seth? Well, mostly answer email. I think that's my job description. Uh, but no, I, there, there are a few astronomers at the SETI Institute, although surprisingly not as many as you might think. And I've been there longer than most. So uh, I, I got this title. I think Frank Drake suggested that I have this title. So I, I yeah. have it. But, you know, obviously there are about 100 scientists at the SETI Institute almost none of whom are doing SETI. They're all doing astrobiology. But I'm one of the few that's connected with the SETI program. Much more from Seth later in the podcast. Steve, what can we look forward to in that conversation? Seth and I talked about uh, lots of stuff, but uh, principally the recent news from the Arecibo radio telescope. Uh, so if, if you're not up to speed on that, um, we will update you. Uh, heartbreaking. Heartbreaking that, that Arecibo's collapsed. Spoilers. We'll hear all about it with Seth later in the podcast. But um, I've waited 43 years. Well, if you count it from when I was born to when The Mandalorian was first released, I've waited 43 years for a live action Star Wars 
series to happen. Ty, why is it finally happened now? Uh, I guess the short answer is Disney has a lot of money. Um, <laughs> back in 2010, George Lucas tried to do a live action TV series. It was called Star Wars Underworld. And I think the plan was that it would be set on Coruscant. And instead of focusing on Jedi and the rebels and the Empire, it would feature basically criminals kind of like what you see with Han Solo and Jabba the Hutt, but the criminal underworld of Coruscant. And George Lucas brought in a whole bunch of writers, people like Ronald D. Moore um, of Battlestar Galactica and Star Trek The Next Generation fame. And there have been lots of interviews over the years, but apparently the writer's room put together over 50 scripts for Star Wars Underworld. But the entire project was eventually shelved by Lucas himself due to the high budget, which is surprising because that man has more money than God. So, <laughs> you know, how high a budget is too high for George Lucas. But apparently all the scripts were shelved. And I assume when Disney bought Lucasfilm, they inherited all those scripts. But no one knows what became of them, whether they're going to be weaved into The Mandalorian or maybe used in any of their future Star Wars TV shows. But yeah, I guess once Disney... Um, took over of Lucasfilm. They brought on John Favreau, Dave Filoni. John Favreau had an idea. Brought in Dave Filoni, who has that immense uh, Star Wars encyclopedic knowledge. And the two of them gave us The Mandalorian. Because Dave Filoni wrote uh, one of the writers on Clone Wars and Rebels, right? Yes, he is the showrunner, brainchild, the Padawan to George Lucas's master... Basically, he is the spiritual heir to Lucasfilm. He knows everything. He created the characters of Bo-Katan and uh, Sokotano. So he oversaw the Clone Wars and essentially put the meat on the bones of George Lucas's Star Wars prequels. So if, like me, you found them inherently unsatisfying, <laughs> then what Dave Filoni did with the Clone Wars makes you... Uh, appreciate these characters on a level that you might not have come away from seeing the films with. So there you go. And he also did Rebels, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. Okay. So before we go any further, I'm just going to say, this is going to be chock full of spoilers. We can talk, we're going to talk about anything and any, everything, well, not everything, anything that happened in seasons one and two of the Mandalorian. So go away and watch them before you listen to the rest, if you care about spoilers. There is one major... If matter. you haven't, why haven't you Yes, yet? exactly. Probably because you haven't got Disney Plus. Yeah. No, quite. Get Disney Plus and, or borrow someone else's and then watch it. Um, or Ty's aunt is sometimes quite useful for these things. But um, she can send VHSs from America. She lives there. It's fine. Um, so there's, um, I, I, I subscribe to Disney Plus specifically because of The Mandalorian. And uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So I can totally understand why they've announced quite as many things as they have from the Star Wars universe. But we'll talk about those later in the podcast. Steve asked me the other day, should I watch The Clone Wars? And my reply was, Rebels is better. Ty? Steve, it all depends if you enjoyed the prequels or not. Personally, I, I'm not a prequel man. They... They underwhelmed me spectacularly, and I've never felt the urge to really go back and watch them. However, Dave Filoni's Clone Wars um, enhances them in a way that George Lucas's writing did not. Um, that is where a lot of the characters in The Mandalorian are introduced. However, 
for me, Star Wars is all about the Rebellion, the Empire, TIE Fighters, X-Wings, Jedi. And that is essentially what Rebels is. It's the birth of the Rebellion um, about five years before the first Star Wars film. Um, so you get all these characters kind of brought over into that. Um, and, you know, there is some introduction to who they are, but you don't really have needed to see the Clone Wars to, to find that out. But obviously, if you watch the Clone Wars, you're going to get more out of Rebels than you would if you hadn't. However, if it's, you just want to kind of find out more about these characters, I'd, I'd personally just start with Rebels. I think I think it's sort of, uh, in a way, uh, this is probably pushing it too far, but it's sort of, um, it, t- it borrows from Firefly in that kind of um, ragtag team on a on a spaceship going about doing their bits and pieces. But it's for kids and it's a cartoon. I, I watched it uh, with my daughter, Lyra, who's going to join us briefly at the end of this podcast with her Star Wars Christmas joke. Uh, we'll probably end the podcast with that. But um, we've been watching it together and it, I, I just love it. I think it's brilliant. Rebels is, is great fun. But this one of the things that I love about uh, The Mandalorian is another sort of, I, I, I'd be very surprised if the people who made The Mandalorian weren't fans of Firefly. You know, that kind of Western mixed with sci-fi feel to it is just brilliant um steve well first of all i absolutely loved it anything that i say in criticism is uh sort of asides i I think it was brilliant i think uh, the way they went about it and and the way that it all turned out uh is is really really impressive um so yeah you're right i I think it, it does remind me a bit of firefly um i i think the the whole space western thing uh, i'd love to see more of that there was uh, something i read the other day about disney considering uh bringing firefly back which i've got mixed mm. feelings about i don't think you can make another firefly this late after firefly um but yeah i'll yeah. watch it <laughs> um i i love the characters um i i've i was a bit unsure about the child um at first i thought it was a bit too cutesy and and, and not really as star wars as i think was but then when you look back at the i don't know there's a lot of um characters particularly in the uh in, in one two three um that are kind of there for comedy value or cute value or merch sales and things like that um also 789 now there's there's a lot of obvious kind of merch shoe-ins there um however he grew on me um he was a great character uh i I, i'm really looking forward to seeing where they take him particularly after the very last episode of season two um so no i i I, I loved it The, the the it felt very star wars um the cinematography was fantastic and i'd love to talk a bit more about how they did that and the sort of tech they used in a bit um the audio the soundscapes and the music were fabulous uh i've got a bit to say on that um the one thing that sort of bugged me throughout was that most episodes seemed to be a bit um a bit of a sort of bad computer game plot yeah, we need to do this, so uh, we need to go and get this. Oh, we can't get this. We have to solve a problem for someone uh, that may not like us a little bit. 
Um, there's a, what, what my other half sent me a, a little uh, video that I shared with you before. I remember we can pop that in the show notes. But it's, it, that kind of resonated throughout. But I'm, I, I think it's hard to avoid that when you're making one-off TV episodes rather than uh, whole movies. And actually the movies kind of have that to them as well. It's it's all a series of tasks to achieve something. And maybe you could come back to that with like, what story is yeah. it? Yeah, you could pick apart any story and, and, yeah. and kind of make it its base elements for sure. What I would say is, uh, I know you prefaced all that by saying you loved it and these are just, you know, kind of minor comments, but I don't, I, I don't think you can love Star Wars and not love, well, you can. But for me, if you took the Ewoks out of Star Wars, that would be a real shame. And surely they're in there for the same reason that Baby Yoda's in there. And, um, I, I, you know, I think it's all part of Star Wars and I don't I don't begrudge it. And I would also say that on your Christmas tree, on your Christmas tree, Steve, is Baby Yoda. So you know. I, I told you he grew on me. He grew <laughs> on me. And what's a Christmas tree without a few nice sci-fi references or sci-fantasy in this case? Yeah, absolutely. Fantasy Ta- fine. What? Ty. What, what genre is Star Wars? Oh, who who cares? It's just wonderful, isn't it? Ty, you've grown up watching um, Planet of the Week shows. So uh, th- this is, as Steve talks about, kind of almost Planet of the Week. What? Uh, how does it feel for you? By Planet of the Week, do you mean Star Trek? Yeah. Okay. The Mandalorian does have that kind of western and space feel um like firefly but star wars main influence has always been uh the kurosara films samurai films so the hidden fortress for example um and then the mandalorian is obviously a space age version of the man with no name that bounty hunter walks into town causes trouble walks away from it um but the relationship between the Mandalorian and Grogu is very much like the old samurai films, uh, the Lone Wolf, Wolf and Cub series, which is about the Shogun's executioner who is um, framed by political rivals and he is forced to go on the run with his infant son after his family's killed. And that's a series of films that just follow this very highly trained samurai and his young child son who is in a pram that's loaded with weaponry. And it's okay. great fun. It's so incredibly violent. But when I watch The Mandalorian, I kind of definitely get that samurai vibe from it, especially in the episode where um, uh, Sokotano fights the female warlord, who is played by Diane Lee uh, Incentano, who was Bruce Lee's... She is Bruce Lee's goddaughter, essentially. Her dad, Dan Incentano, was one of Bruce Lee's main uh, students, and he has picked up a lot of the... Jeet Kune Do training and trained his daughter. So that fight was spectacular for, you know, just not just that one reason, but that was just one of the reasons why that episode was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it is. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And I think it's made with love, you know, I think. And that's why it's so uh, wonderful for us fans, you know, the Dave Filoni link and everything. But I think everybody who's involved in it is in love with Star Wars. And the same, you know, watching Ming-Na Wen's posts on on Instagram when she was announcing that she was in it. I mean, there's a clear, she's a massive nerd. I'd like to think of her as a massive nerd. She wears t-shirts that declare she's a massive nerd. But and she's, you know, her j- pure joy for being in this show, the writer's pure joy for writing on this show, comes across in 
what you're watching on the screen. And that's why it feels like Star Wars, because it feels like the Star Wars that we love. And I'm definitely not one of the people who thinks that the recent sequels are not the Star Wars that we love. I love the new sequels, all of them, every single one of them, all three. And um, there is a cameo at the end. Is it a cameo? It's quite a big part, isn't it? Um, a big part of the plot at the end of season two. This is a massive spoiler, so please stop listening if you don't know this. But at the end of season two, we get Luke Skywalker. I mean, the return of Luke Skywalker is only going to be one of three Jedi, I think, who are potentially alive right now. So Ahsoka Tano, Ezra Miller from Rebels. Yep. <laughs> or Luke or Leia. Um, I think those are the only Jedi who are alive. And there's a lot of thoughts online about fan service, but I think what The Mandalorian does very well is it caters to the many generations of Star Wars fans. I'm 37, I grew up with the original trilogy. I don't really like the prequels. I liked some of the sequel films, but Star Wars is not just for me anymore. There are people that grew up with the prequels and for them, that is Star Wars. They love that. There is a whole new generation that grew up with Ray and Finn and Poe Dameron, and that is their Star Wars. And I think what The Mandalorian does very well is it juggles all those elements. So you can see that The Mandalorian is going towards the birth of the First Order because every Imperial officer we come across stresses that they're all about law and order. Law and order, we're going to bring order back to the galaxy. Then you've got these Clone Wars characters like Sokotano and Bo-Katan coming in. And then, you know, your granddaddy of them all, Luke Skywalker. So I think that is why The Mandalorian has gone down with Star Wars fans of all ages so well, because it does, you know, walk that line spectacularly well. Um, and as for Luke Skywalker, I thought it was really cool to see him with the green lightsaber, the gloved hand, his black onesie. Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating what they kind of link to, like the Dark Troopers I remember from the Dark Forces computer game, which I had in like the mid-90s, which was like Doom, but Star Wars, and that was all about your yeah. hero trying to find and shut down the Dark Trooper program. What did you have that on? That was on my PC. Oh, okay, cool. So I'm wondering if they're going to like introduce the characters from those games that I played growing up. Admiral Thrawn was in the TIE Fighter game, and he's been put into the Star Wars universe via Rebels and various other mediums. So I'm wondering if you'll see like Dash Rendar from the Shadows of the Empire computer game or Karl Katarn mm. come in, and that'd be... Great. Of course, in those games, it's just, you know, they are Han Solo ripoffs, so maybe they could reimagine them a bit, but whatever. It'd be cool. Because there's also in Star Wars Battlefront 2, that's really the only time we've seen Luke Skywalker the way we see him in The Mandalorian, you know, that kind of lightsaber wielding, as well as his father did in Rogue One. That Rogue One scene is really interesting because I think you can judge a lot by... The, how that per, that person describes that scene. For me, it's the first time you really see Darth Vader go all out. But it's so brutal and horrific what he's doing to those rebel soldiers. Anyone who describes it as really cool, I think <laughs> you need to kind of keep small animals away from them. But it was very, it's very well put together. And it's even more impressive that that's a last 
that was a last minute addition due to reshoots. I did notice in the latest episode, not latest episode, latest season of The Mandalorian, Bill Burr's character, when they do that Wages of Fear um, homage where they're transporting explosives through the jungle, when he's talking to that Imperial officer, they mention Operation Cinder, which I think is the Imperial operation from Battlefront 2, where the Empire is just blowing up planets they previously occupied as a kind of uh, total war. If we can't have it, no one can. Yeah. So that was a little nod that I, I picked up on. That's very cool. That's very, very cool. I, I think it's really, I, I like the, you know, the mirroring of the Rogue One thing with Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker is obviously slaying the dark troopers, the droids. So it's, it's okay. Whereas his dad, the evil dad in Rogue One is, is slaying people. You know, foreshadowing, not foreshadowing, but but speaking directly to the Luke that we see in The Last Jedi. I mean, I think the, the, they clearly have written that fully knowing that the, the Luke in Last Jedi is a great portrayal of a, an interesting story arc for uh, our favourite character from the original trilogies. But uh, I don't suppose everybody thinks that and that's okay i think one of the things that i'm interested to see because i'm now watching it again with with lyra we started again at, um as soon as it finished i started watching it again with Lyra, which is now great because i've gone back to the beginning again and watching it again knowing the full arc of the two seasons what i'm really interested to see is whether lyra who's somebody who's um knows the original trilogy she knows rebels and so when she sees um Bo-Katan, Katie Sackhoff's character, when she sees Ahsoka Tano, Rosario Dawson, there's no place there, you know, she's going to, she's going to be, you know, the fan service for her as a nine-year-old for that is going to be immense. And I'm really interested to see if that's bigger or smaller than it is for when Luke appears at the end of the, end of the whole thing. It's going to be an interesting thing. But the way that it looks, I know, Steve, you've been particularly delighted by the way uh, they use tech to make yeah, it. Um... They've used some really groundbreaking production techniques for for this, um, and it's kind of the culmination of a lot of stuff that John Favreau has been working towards um, with uh, some VR and um, uh, computer game projects that that he's got going on as well. Um, so uh, I think it's over half of the shots in The Mandalorian. Um, were filmed on an LED stage where they've got these big high res uh, on some of the stages, 360 degree LED screen walls. And that's the set. There might be some practical stuff uh, that the characters are interacting with or in the foreground. Um, but the vast majority of it is projected from the walls. And... Um, that there'd the, the be limitations to doing that um, using old film techniques, but but they've got um, tracking of the the cameras uh, so that the parallax of the uh, the background behind you um, moves with the camera movement. So um, and, and it's it's according to what I've read, it's, it's revolutionised um, the way they're doing stuff. They they don't need to. Um, scout out sets they can just send what they want or they can um image them uh in, in advance and, ha and have much quicker turnaround than, than you'd have to if you go around the world to all these different locations 
Um, it, it's, it, it makes the post-production a lot easier because everything's there. The characters are lit by what's around them. Um, so you, you, you don't need to compensate for that. And, and, and it just means you can, you can do stuff at a scale and a scope um, and produce things at a speed uh, that, that suits TV but gives you the cinematic um, effects. I mean, we'll, we'll come on to Mark Hamill because um, I, I still think we're not quite there with uh, facial composition and things on it, it, with, with the, um, uh, what was it, 789, um, the, some of the faces were, were really janky and, and right in the middle of the uncanny valley to me. And I, I think Luke's was in this as well. I, do, do you know if it was Mark Hamill that, that did the acting for it? But... It was Mark Hamill. John Favreau has publicly said that they did have um, Mark Hamill on set for that. And they digitally, you know, made him younger. But he was there on set to do the lines. And they were very surprised that that didn't leak. They On Disney Plus, they've just started putting up the episodes of season two of the Mandalorian gallery, which is behind the scenes uh, look. And I've watched the first episode the other day and that was really fun. Peyton Reed directed the, um, the finale. And while that doesn't, they don't go into bringing back Luke Skywalker in that one. I have a feeling they're saving an entire episode about how they digitally de-aged Luke Skywalker, which you know, some people have criticised, but as with everything, it's, you know, time and money that is needed to do these things. And I think with post-production being done at home <laughs> for so many of these shows at the moment, it was kind of more a time and money situation than, you know, it couldn't be done. Yeah, because it's not, it's a bit funny because it, uh, the show itself, like the post-production on the show itself, with the exception of the man in jeans, it, it's brilliant. I mean, it looks amazing. So it does kind of stick out a bit. It's Well, it's the technology they use. As Steve said, they've got these big virtual screens around them. So uh, films like Oblivion use them. And with the pandemic, I think a lot of shows are bringing them in. Uh, I think Star Trek Discovery is bringing one in for season four. Because instead of having to go out on location, you can adjust the light and the camera to track with the light around the actors. So it means that any special effects, you know, aren't constantly there and they're not against a green screen. So you can kind of see how the light doesn't work perfectly. Um, but he, some things are just really hard to do. Everyone remembers Justice League where Henry Cavill had a mustache because he was doing Mission Impossible Fallout and they tried to digitally erase it and it <laughs> just looked like he had had a stroke. And that was that film had an insane budget, like three hundred million. If they can't even erase a mustache properly, Mark Hamill, you know, they've got to de-age him forty years or something. They did a decent job, I think, and he only had a couple of lines. Don't don't get me wrong though. I mean, that sort of deep fake style um, composition is amazing, and the fact that they can make it nearly right is just so impressive. Um, but uh, yeah, no. So so the visuals. Um, I, I was so impressed with it. I mean, to the makeup and effects and costumes and everything as well. The the, the physical stuff that they did uh, was just fantastic as well. It was just so lovely um, with all the different Mandalorian um, armors and um, the the different alien species that that they they brought in. 
Uh, speaking of alien species, stay tuned for Seth Shostak, the principal astronomer of the SETI Institute, talking to us about the latest on aliens and, well, have we found any? That's coming soon. Sorry, Steve, back to you. Um, but no, visually, it was fantastic. The other thing that really, really got me right from the start was the the soundtrack. Ludwig Göransson, he's worked with Donald Glover as Childish Gambino for uh, a lot of his albums. He's done loads of movie stuff, um, uh, Black Panther and um, uh, Creed and Venom and Fruitvale Station and stuff. He's, he's amazingly experienced for someone, I, I don't know how old he is, but he doesn't look that old. Yeah, he's only 36. Really? Uh, yeah, no, he's he's just fantastic. There's a video that they've released. Um, th- there's one of uh, sort of that's very well produced uh, with him on the sets doing some, some music, sort of a music video to the soundtrack. Um, but there's also an interview, I can't remember if it was Vox or something else, so I'll... I'll um, dig the video out but there's an interview with him with a bit more detail about what he did and how he did it and harking back to westerns and samurai films and things like that and it's just lovely the soundtrack no it's a beautiful beautiful thing uh ludwig hats off to you for a wonderful soundtrack absolutely absolutely beautiful and uh, what i would say if um john favreau wants to you know in the future go back and redo retouch those um those, those scenes in the, in the of the CGI on the faces. Yeah, in the tradition of George Lucas, then that's fine. We can release those on, on special Blu-ray editions in the future. Ty's shaking his head up. There. Maybe. They could just switch it on Disney Plus and no one notice. They just go, we've got a new version, quickly upload this. They can, yeah. they can do whatever they want. That's yeah. true. There is a thing that I just want to talk about briefly, which is uh, Carl Weathers in those Disney Plus, the gallery thing, Carl Weathers says that um, he wanted to work with John Favreau. That was a given, but he had to read the script, and he had to read the script because, as an actor, you are endorsing what the writers are saying about the world in which we're in. So you have to check that you're okay with that. It's quite an interesting thing. I haven't really thought of actors doing that before. Whether they just do it because they get paid for it, but us as fans have another question. And uh, it's a related question. And I, I, let's not name the people because I don't think it's really necessary to do so. But there are a couple of people who are actors have tweeted things which are, shall we say, politically wrong, D- different to how I would want to see the world. You know, support saying things about masks being, uh, you know, not useful for um battling COVID-19, supporting, you know, let's face it, the worst, corrupt, most unpleasant president that you could ever wish to imagine. Things like that. When did Darth Vader get in? (laughs) About four years ago. He's he's on his way out now, so it's fine. So there's, if you're, um, does this worry you? Does this concern you when the actors are, let's think of, you know, there are actors also in the Marvel films who might you know, be politically different to the way we might want them to be. Does it bother you when you're watching things? Does it bother you when you're going to watch something? I've always struggled, and I don't think I've resolved that question on whether you can separate a person from their art. And uh, I think the thing that sort of posed the question the best to me is, is um, some of the 
uh, best medical drawings that are so useful in saving lives were made by Nazi scientists uh, on people that hadn't consented uh, to <laughs> be killed and examined. Um, and I, 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 maybe, maybe that one's a little bit more cutting because it's it's something that saves lives rather than entertains. Um, so maybe it's not a, a direct enough comparison. But I, I think I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. And uh, I, I only uh, found that out when you told me earlier today um, about The Mandalorian. Um, so I think it's something that worries me, but I think that might be in the back of my mind next time I watch it, but it's not gonna stop me enjoying the plot and the, uh, the just the wonderfulness of it. Ty, Ty is generally more considered than me on these sorts of things. Should people be removed from shows for their political views? No. It's a very simple answer. No, they shouldn't. Of course they shouldn't. That's ridiculous. Um, you know, I grew up watching lots of old movies. People's political views changed. Charlton Heston went from being someone who walked with Martin Luther King during the Civil Rights Act, quite, you know, you know, gun-loving conservative. James Stewart, who is like the most wholesome actor any of us grew up with and you know it's a wonderful life and harvey he was very conservative and was a supporter of the vietnam war despite it claiming the life of his son as for this actor um on the mandalorian if they believe you know the pandemic is a fake they are going to be put in a position where if they want to work on the next season they are going to have to adhere to covid um restrictions you know they're gonna have to wear masks and everything and it will be interesting to see if on the first day of work they're going, well, obviously, I don't believe the pandemic is real, so I'm going to go home and not work on this show. Something tells me they'll be like, oh, no, sure, I'll wear a mask and do whatever you say. Um, because I like to work. So, and I, you know, firing people for their political views, what they post on social media, history will, in time, will, you know judge these people's kind of stances uh but i don't think it should really affect their work unless they are putting people at risk on set by you know not wearing masks and coughing on people movie making like so many other parts of the real world it's based on relationships and getting along with people if you're going to be a complete asshole don't expect anyone to want to work with you it's as simple as that yeah i mean i mean it looks to me like that's not the case certainly on set everybody's supportive everyone seems to have nothing but nice things to say about each other which is yeah. great this was obviously like just as the pandemic was kicking in and now in america there's what three hundred fifty thousand people dead i mean if you're still banging the drum that it's all a fraud made up by the mainstream media you're, you're going to be in a shock on your first day of work for the next season and you know no one has been replaced so i can only assume that they are towing the line and not, you know, saying this sort of nonsense on set. Well, what I would say is that the many of the people who've been uh, Republican politicians who've been speaking out and saying that it's all a hoax are at the front of the queue for the vaccine. So that tells you what you need to know, doesn't it, really? But let's just finally, on The Mandalorian, maybe we'll come back to it after we've heard from Seth, but we're going to talk about the forthcoming Star Wars series, which has been announced by Disney. But um, I think that at the core of it for me, the thing that I love most about it, and I'm clearly not alone on this, is the relationship between Grogu and the Mandalorian. 
and the amazing um amazing acting directing whatever it is the combination of the two that puts across so, quite so much emotion in a totally emotionless face yes there's body language but there's just no facial expressions at all and you get so much from pedro pascal mm -hmm. as the mandalorian famously um it's not just pedro pascal mm -hmm. on set there are I think three stuntmen, one of whom is John Wayne's grandson, and Pedro Pascal, uh, depending on what needs to be done. However, from watching some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, Pedro Pascal does seem to be a lot more present than I thought he might be, which is nice to see. As for his relationship with the puppet, I think you have Werner Herzog to thank for that, because I think when Werner Herzog first came in for season one, he was told that they were going to digitally enhance whatever basic puppet that they had. And he very loudly proclaimed the production team to be a bunch of fucking cowards and that they should just use the puppet. And so they did. They just built a better puppet. And that has become, you know, what everyone knows and loves. However, I, I just find it surprising that that wasn't the plan to begin with, seeing as Star Wars is all about puppets and animatronics. Yeah. Well, that's what kind of people love from the original films and what they used a lot in the sequels and less so in the prequels. Although, interesting fact, the uh, pod racer set, that amphitheater, that was a big miniature they built. And I think that episode one was, of all the Star Wars films, the film that used the most models and miniatures. Whoa. And then less so for the other two. And they did make a better puppet. They made a wonderful puppet, who from the very first moment I adored. And um, also someone from the very first moment I adored is Steve Bullock. And Steve Bullock has been speaking to Seth Shostak, the principal astronomer at SETI. And where are we on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence uh, at the moment? Well, there's kind of a, a, a shift. The real problem with SETI in this country, and for that matter, every other country, is the uh, lack of money. There's no federal uh, support for SETI. So it's all funded by donations, people who you know think that it's an interesting thing to do. So that limits what you can do. But what we are doing and what is new, improved equipment, that's usually the story in SETI, and also the use of uh, other antennas. So, uh, one of our projects will be running on the very large array, which is down in New Mexico. It's a big array of 27 antennas. They'll be running in a sort of a piggyback mode. So we don't get the exclusive use of the telescope. We can sort of piggyback on other work that's being done there. But SETI's gone sort of in and out of favour, certainly on kind of formal government funding over over the decades. Are we are we in a, a boom or a bust with, with SETI funding? Well, it, it has gone out, as you say. It hasn't often gone in uh, favour. Uh, the only government SETI program was the NASA SETI program, at least in this country. Uh, and that was in effect when I joined the SETI Institute back in 1990, a long time ago. But by 1993, Congress had killed that. So there's been no federal funding for SETI for at least three decades now, close to three decades. And, uh, you know, that's kind of nutty because you would think NASA would be interested in this because NASA claims to be interested in life in space, but not in intelligent life. 
I noticed uh, on a, a TED, TEDx talk, San Jose, I think you gave you, you said you thought that we'd find life in the next 24 years um, uh, or, or you'd buy everyone a cup of coffee. Um, uh, am I eligible for my third of a cup of coffee yet? Or, or Not what do you yet. Think we're gonna, no, you have to wait doing. till about 2035 <laughs> and, and, and then you can get your cup of coffee if we haven't found anything. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't wait if you feel the need for a cup of coffee. Uh, I, I would get one in the meantime, just in case. <laughs> the bet's still on, though. You, are, you, are you, what's, what's, your, what's yes. your confidence? I mean, cup yeah. of coffee is reasonably low stake, but cup of coffee for everyone. It, it, it uh, is, but when you consider bet. there's 7 billion people in the, uh, in the world, uh, it's maybe not such a, a low stakes bet. But the prediction was made sort of as an uh, offhand comment in a talk I was giving uh, on the continent actually years ago. And the reason that I made that bet is simply because the equipment being used for SETI keeps getting better. It, it kind of doubles in speed every couple of years. It follows what's called Moore's Law, which is a uh, actually an economic law here in the Silicon Valley that uh, you know every, every two years, the amount of computer you can buy per pound, it kind of doubles. Uh, and you know that's just improvements in the technology. But that technology also applies to to SETI. And as a consequence, uh, by 2035, 2040, somewhere in there, we will have looked at about a million star systems. And personally, that sounds like the right number to score a hit. So I'm willing to back that up with a cup of coffee. That's great. I, I remember it was a, an episode only a couple of years ago, I think, we were marveling at the, the first um, exoplanet to be properly uh, sort of analyzed, discovered, that sort of thing. And, and now it seems like we're, we're finding tens a week. Every other space story is about the next exoplanet. Well, it's, it's certainly true that uh, planet discovery, if you will, exoplanet discovery, has become a big industry. The first one found around a, a normal star uh, didn't occur till 1995. So, you know, that's, well, that's 25 years ago. But since then, there have been between four and 5,000 that have been discovered, mostly using the Kepler Space Telescope. But that's not quite uh, active in the same way anymore. So the, the, the big harvest, if you will, is a little bit over. But there are other uh, telescopes being constructed that will do more. I think that the interest now is to kind of follow up on planets that might be relatively near to us and examine them in more detail to see if you can find things like, you know, oxygen in the atmospheres or something like that which would be an astounding discovery okay i'm, I'm not up on kepler is, is that winding down or being used for other things well kepler lost its uh, ability to point accurately uh, the gyroscopes oh. on it began to fail uh, uh -huh. years ago now so it's you know been put into other modes and basically what's happening with kepler now is close to nothing uh but data are being still analyzed that were collected by the kepler telescope Okay, was that an early failure, or was that part part of the? It wasn't so early. I mean, it was okay. I don't know, four years, five years after it was launched. So it didn't okay. happen right away. It wasn't like you know with the Hubble Space Telescope, where the mirror was determined to be faulty right at the beginning. So, just back to sort of more direct SETI. We we've had a few tantalizing glimpses of of potential signs of extraterrestrial life uh, again over the decades right from the the wow signal up to Oumuamua and, and and other things um but but recently we've we've had a few more sort of terrestrial based uh things we um we found some monoliths which seem to be disappearing and, and popping up everywhere else well, what's your what's your take on that 
Yeah, well, uh, I was willing to believe that these monoliths were installed by unknown aliens until I saw a truck drive through the streets here, you know, and the bed of which was filled with dozens and dozens of these things, obviously with, with the, you know, shipping labels on them. So they were being sent to various parts of the world for, for being, for, for, for planting, if you will. Yes, well, I think most of the monoliths after the one in Utah were copycat monoliths. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that aliens would send us something uh, against which you can lean your bicycle. I, you know, they, they have very little other utility, as far as I can tell. They are attractive, and I'm hoping to get one from my backyard. But I don't, <laughs> I don't think they have anything to do with aliens. Uh, but Stanley Kubrick thought they might. I, uh, I'm, I'm waiting for one to pop up in Bristol. It's, it's just the sort of town that I, I can see that happening in. And, and, and what about, um, I haven't got his name here, but the, the Israeli space security ex-chief, uh, who uh, I think it was just, just yesterday uh, announced that apparently there's a galactic federation that's only talking to the U.S. and Israel. Yes, Haya Meshed. He was a former uh, head of Israel's Defense Ministry's Space Directorate. So he's been connected with uh, space, uh, but he's made all these interesting claims that there's an underground uh, base, you know, under the rusty, dusty surface of Mars, occupied by people from the U.S. government and the aliens. And this has undoubtedly got to be a disappointment for Elon Musk, because Elon Musk wants to take people to Mars, presumably for the first time in a couple of years, and to hear that, well, gosh darn it, the government already has civil servants working there on Mars is, you know, that, that that's a bit of a bummer, deprives him of priority, as Robert Scott said once. So uh, I... You know, I, I don't think that I'm going to take this very seriously. It does remind me of the claims that were made by several other prominent people. There was the uh, the former Canadian Minister of Defense, Paul Hellyer, who also claimed that, yes, indeed, you know, the UFOs are for real and the aliens are here. And, you know, this guy, after all, had a very high position in the Canadian government. Uh, but this was the claim he was making. Mind you, at the age, he was in his mid-90s when he started making these claims. And I don't know if that has anything to do with it. I, I wouldn't dare to say that, but, you know, it is suspicious. And also, Edgar Mitchell, who was, a, you know, an Apollo astronaut, I you know, spoke to him on several occasions. Nice guy. But he also claimed that the UFOs were real. And when I pressed him on that, I said, well, what had he seen? And he, he did uh, state that, well, actually, he hadn't seen anything, but it had been told to him that the UFOs were actually alien spacecraft. So these kinds of things are frequently stated, but, you know, that doesn't mean they're real. Okay, so not, not convinced until we get uh, a bit more info on uh, what's going on there yet? Well, I, I think it, it takes more than just the statements of this guy saying that there's a secret underground base on Mars where the uh, U.S. government is involved. Um, you know, I've, I've worked for the U.S. government, actually, in, in Washington, and I was never convinced of their ability to populate secret underground Martian bases, but, you know, who's to say? We're going to need some extraordinary evidence for those extraordinary claims. Uh, is that a, that's a Saganism, I think, isn't it? Well, it's um, attributed to Sagan, although he wasn't the first one to say it. Uh, speaking of, the, um, the, the main reason that I wanted to, to talk to you uh, was about the, the huge news over the last few weeks about the Arecibo uh, radio telescope. I... I can't remember if it was the first time that I saw it, but it, it features prominently in, in uh, the Robert Zemeckis film based on Carl Sagan's Contact. 
and it's a it's a phenomenal piece of engineering. That's that's my field, um, and uh, I know it was a huge asset to the uh, astronomical community. Um, for those of us, I, I, I doubt we've got many listeners that aren't at least aware of Arecibo. Um, but c- could you give us a, a little summary about what it was and what it did? Yeah, well, the Arecibo Radio Telescope, which is indeed located actually not downtown Arecibo, which is a small city on the uh, northwest coast of Puerto Rico, uh, is located another you know, roughly 20 miles inland. But in any case, this was uh, a project originally fostered by the U.S. Army that was interested in studying the Earth's ionosphere, this part of the atmosphere that has lots of charged particles. Uh, the ionosphere, you may figure, doesn't you know, play a big role in your life, but actually in some ways it does because it facilitates long-distance radio communication. Anybody who drives around the countryside at night turning their automobile radio will notice that you know, the AM stations, I, I think they're called middle wavelengths in, in Europe, I'm not quite sure, but anyhow, the low-frequency AM radio you can pick up stations that are very, very far away at night. And the reason that happens is not because they turn up the power switch at night, but only that, you know, at night the ionosphere changes its characteristics and it acts as a big mirror for low-frequency radio waves at night. And so, you know, the, the radio waves from the continent or wherever else will bounce off that ionosphere. Anyhow, the uh, Army was interested in this for the obvious reason that they depend on long-distance communication. So they we're going to build a big transmitter with a big, you know, uh, uh, reflector, a, a, a big, if you will, radio lens, although it's really a radio mirror, put it down in Puerto Rico and uh, bounce uh, signals, radar signals off the ionosphere and study them. But as soon as they started doing this, the people at Cornell University, where a lot of the design was being carried out, realized, that, well, by gosh, if you're going to build that big, you know, a, a radio mirror, we could also use it for astronomy. And so it has, ever since it was completed in the early 1960s, been used for both astronomy and for radar. Now, it's a big thing. It's 1,000 feet across. Uh, I I reckon once it could hold 2 billion scoops of ice cream, which, of course, wouldn't be so good in Puerto Rico because it's always kind of warm and (laughs) would all melt. But, you know, so, so it's been used for astronomy, but they also still study the ionosphere. They use the big transmitter. We've sent a message into space as kind of a stunt back in 1974, I believe it was. And, and and not only that, you know, it was used to find the first extrasolar uh, planet. And uh, I used it to study galaxies in the 1970s. It's used to study pulsars. It has a long history of uh, service to astronomy and also SETI. Unfortunately, beginning in August, it began to fall apart. And now it is truly sort of imploded. So it looks like it's going to be taken apart and trucked away. And there's there's no going back for this. There's this. It's not salvageable uh, in, well, in its original sense. Well, of course it is. I mean, you can always rebuild something if you want to do it. The National Science Foundation, which is largely funded Arecibo, uh, says they don't want to do it. They just want to take it apart. Now, you know, not everybody agrees with that. I personally don't even agree with that. I mean, this is a unique instrument, and the only comparable one is one that was recently uh, completed in China which is slightly bigger than the one of Puerto Rico. But it'd be a you know a real shame if, for example, American astronomers, and actually Arecibo is used by people around the world, uh, you know, wasn't there. You could rebuild it, but uh, I, I had an email from the director who said that the cost of rebuilding it was $120 million. That's, that's a lot of money. 
And, uh, you know, you can say, well, should we do that or should we spend $120 million on something else for astronomy? And, of course, that's a judgment call. But, but while it was in use, I, I guess its, it's utility was unquestionable. There's, there's a lot of stuff that, that it's been used for. The, you, you mentioned um, uh, the, the message we sent out. I, I, um, Arecibo can transmit as well as receive or could, uh, which always astounded me. What, 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 was, what was the purpose of that? Well, that was the original intention, to study the ionosphere by, you know, just transmitting a pulse of, you know, radio energy, if you will, straight up, bounce it off the ionosphere, collect the, you know, the echo, the radio echo, and study, you know, well, this is a lot of echo, not so much echo as it, you know, changed the frequency slightly because of motions in the ionosphere. It was just a probe to study the ionosphere, and that's why it has that transmitter. The transmitter is about, I think it's two megawatts. It's a powerful transmitter. And that allowed it to send a message into space just for the fun of it back in 1974, because it did have a transmitter. If you go to Jodrell Bank in the UK, you know, you see all these big antennas, but none of them has a transmitter, to my knowledge. I, I guess unique at its scale, and the, um, uh, what is it, the five kilometer away in, in, in China doesn't, doesn't it, it, that's just a receiver, right? Uh, that is, yes, best I know. I don't think that has any transmit capability. Sorry, 500 meter array, five kilometers. Yes, 500 meters, it's, uh, it's big. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's the, the Arecibo antenna is 300 meters, 305 meters. Yeah. So this is, you know, five thirds the size, which means it's 25 ninths. It's almost three times as sensitive. And I, I, I was tracking the, uh, the sort of gradual degradation it was uh, something like august we had a, a cable fall and then another one and then um uh, the the video that came out last week where they were inspecting the the cables as it collapsed was quite phenomenal i think it was 900 tons of receiver and, and all the other gubbins yeah. up there that all fell down i thought it was a little less than that but that's that's you know order magnitude correct and uh yeah it's a it's a big thing if you've gone to Arecibo, you'll see that this feed platform, which is the thing held up by the cables where all the receivers are, it's a mammoth thing. It's like 10 stories high from top to bottom. So it's a, it's a big structure, lots of steel, cables that are as thick as your arm, and, uh, you know, somewhere between a half dozen and a dozen cables holding the whole thing together. And it it kind of looks like, uh, you know, Brunel's bridge in Bristol with these uh, heavy cables. It's kind of basically a suspension bridge. And... Uh, you know, you don't expect those to fail, right? So it was surprising to me and to many other people when one cable failed, as you mentioned, I think that was August 10th, people were astounded, but okay, you could fix that. But then when a second one failed, then, you know, they realized, okay, there's a systemic problem here. There's there's something fundamentally wrong. And uh, I don't think that anybody knows yet why these cables failed. Okay, so definitely an unplanned disassembly of, of a, uh, a a crazy scale i how how much is it set back seti and, and and wider astronomy to lose arecibo well that's one of those questions you really can't answer because you don't know what you don't know right it, you know astronomy isn't about going out and looking at things you already know about uh, that's generally not what you do i mean it's <laughs> not much point in that it's like going out every night with your backyard telescope and looking at the moon yep still there bob well, yeah, okay, but you know that doesn't tell you very much. The thing about Arecibo was that it found new things, and it was used for a wide range of stuff. I, I, I think I mentioned I used to use it for 
studying galaxies, mostly small galaxies, but which is very good because it's so so big, it's very, very sensitive. And you know, you find very weak emission, natural emission, that's the stuff from galaxies, but also pulsars, a lot of pulsar work there. Uh, and by studying pulsars in 1993, I think it was, a guy by the name of Alex Volshan, a Polish astronomer, found the first planet around another star. It was around a dead star, a pulsar. But, you know, people tend to forget that, that that was done at Arecibo. And uh, so pulsars, galaxies, uh, and and also asteroids, by the way, because of that radar capability. You could bounce radar waves off, you know, asteroids. And then by analyzing what gets bounced back, you can actually make models of what these things look like. In fact, there's a guy at the SETI Institute, Michael Bush, who if you look at his desk, it's got all these little 3D printed models of asteroids. This is what they actually look like, even though, you know, if you looked at them through a telescope, you wouldn't see any of that. But, you know, so, you know, that's that's also valuable if you want to avoid having, you know, one of the major metropoli of the UK wiped out by an asteroid. I mean, if one came down and, you know, took out Swindon, that would be a real loss. So the, the idea well, is... It's Swindon. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, to avoid that, you you want to map these things out, learn more about what they're like and how how, how big a hole they'll make. So, so potentially significant, but we're we're not going to know until it lands on our head. Um. Well, well, in terms of the asteroids, <laughs> yes, but in terms of Arecibo, I, I guess the point is to say, what are we missing out? Well, you don't you don't know what you're missing out. You know, it's like saying it, okay. if Leeuwenhoek hadn't built the microscope, what would we miss out on? He, he wouldn't have known. Do, do you see a place for another Arecibo or a, a refurbished Arecibo? Or, or, or do you think the money would be better spent um, on more distributed projects or, or other projects? Well, there is quite a bit of interest these days in building radio telescopes that are not one giant single dish, as it's called, uh, but building arrays because arrays can do things that single dish can't, in particular, see fine detail. But but that's, you know, all underway. The Europeans are building the square kilometer array. I don't know that the United States is involved much in that anymore. But anyhow, so that'll be a very powerful instrument, too. It, you know, it, essentially the area of a square kilometer, but spread out over, you know, a lot of real estate in South Africa and also Western Australia and, and to some extent the European continent. But, um, you know, there's always a need for just a big light bucket, if you will, or maybe you should call it a radio bucket like Arecibo. I mean, the Chinese didn't build that 500 meter antenna just, you know, because of its decorative value. You know, they, they realized it had a lot of scientific value. And uh, maybe you say, okay, well, we don't need more than one. And the Chinese have built it. And maybe you could argue that, but of course, and the Chinese have, uh, you know, stated that they're going to make this available to astronomers everywhere. But it, it's kind of nice to have your own instrument. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> that's that's good, though. That's it, It's nice to see scientists cooperating, even if no one else can in this day and age. I, I, I love I love the, the naming of, of all of these facilities, the the 500-meter aperture spherical telescope, the very large array, the square kilometer array. Um, I guess there's uh, – I'm trying to think of a, a telescope that's got a – uh, a creative name, but uh, I, I well, guess we're all scientists. Yeah, a lot of them do, but they're not terribly creative. And you're quite right that uh, <laughs> astronomers seem to be uh, extremely lacking in imagination when it comes to naming the instruments. I, I've used lots of radio telescopes, and they all had uh, these kind of boring names like 
the 140-foot antenna or the 300-foot <laughs> telescope or, you know. Now, but the Hubble Space Telescope was called the Hubble. It wasn't called the 120-inch or whatever it was. But in, in, in the United States, actually, a lot of the telescopes are named after the person who wrote the check to build them, at least once from the 19th mm. century. And so you do have the Yerkes uh, Observatory, the Yerkes Telescope. You have, you know, the 200-inch telescope when I was a kid was called the 200-inch telescope. It was the biggest in the world at one point. But, you know, they changed the name to the Hale Telescope because he was involved in the construction. But if you have a lot of mm. money and you want to give it to build an observatory, you can get your name on it. Something to keep in mind. I'll, I'll work on that. Moving back to extraterrestrial intelligence, um, you you were you spoke to Andrew, the proprietor of the shed, uh, back in November 2016 on our episode covering uh, the Arrival movie, um, which I, I love. It's it's a fantastic piece of work. Uh, Andrew asked you um, whether you'd want to be there in the room when uh, when we made first contact, and I, I think your response was. Something along the lines of you, you're going to head for the hills. Um, I, I guess that hasn't changed in in, in four years, but uh, I, I I found that insightful because um, if we do meet extraterrestrial intelligence, it's going to be probably more intelligent than us if it's if it's come to us rather than us going to them. Have, have you got any more thoughts on um, first contact? Um, I, I'm assuming your your twenty four uh, twenty twenty four bet was um, on us detecting it rather than actually meeting it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The idea that by the mid twenty thirties we we pick up a signal, but you know they they could still be a thousand light years away. I mean, it's it's one thing to pick up a a signal or just find something in space, uh, which is I think a good way to find the extraterrestrials. Actually, I mean, you just think about it. All right, the the galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, is three times as old as our solar system. So if there is intelligence out there, if it's not such a rare thing, uh, you know, one in a million stars has an intelligent society. Well, there are an awful lot of them in the galaxy. And uh, some of them are going to be much older than our own society. So some of them may have capabilities that are to ours as ours are to those of, uh, I don't know, ancient Greece. So they could be doing all sorts of interesting things, including re reworking their local part of the universe. They might be doing that. You might see stars lined up or who knows what, Dyson spheres, something. So I, you know, I think that that might happen. But in terms of them coming here, although that's a great premise for the movie biz, uh, particularly when they destroy Los Angeles, because those of us here in Northern California have absolutely no problem with that. If, if they destroy Los Angeles, uh, all right, they, they have to pay for that. I mean, it's expensive. To come here, and then, of course, the additional cost of trashing the city. So, you know, you kind of wonder, well, to begin with, why? But who's to say what aliens might do? But the second thing is, how do they even know about Los Angeles? And if they're even a reasonable distance away, they don't know about Homo sapiens at all, because, you know, it's very hard to find us if you're not listening to our television or radar or something like that. And uh, those signals are pretty new. You probably get asked this a lot, but I think it's it's worth reiterating as as much as possible. What would you say to um, people who say we we should sort out what we're doing here on terra firma before we turn our eyes to the stars? Yeah, I think that I mean that 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 argument doesn't doesn't cut it with me. You could have said that about anything that we did. I mean, why send Captain Cook into the South Pacific 
in the late 18th century. You know, uh, we, we got other problems right here in London. We don't need to send this guy out there. It's just going to cost everybody some money. That's true, but it was worth it. Or, or, you know, I mean, this guy Beethoven, he keeps composing music. We got better things to do with the money than that. It's only music, right? I mean, you can always say that, but the, the facts are that exploration, which is what all this stuff is about, is an essential for any society that hopes to still be around 50 years later. I, I find that it, it, it humbles me and, and makes me want to uh, make things better down here when I, when I think about the, the wider universe. Yeah. I mean, you could have told the ancient Greeks, right? You could tell, tell this guy Euclid. I don't know, remember what his first name was. Might have been, you know, Bob. Anyhow, you say, look, Euclid, uh, <laughs> we got people. I think he was like Cher, wasn't he? He's just got one name. Yeah, it could be. As well, he, he, he cut a lot of albums. But I, I think that, uh, you know, you could have said to Euclid, well, we got people dying in the streets of hunger, which I'm sure was true. And uh, so you're working out, you know, uh, uh, the geometry of triangles and stuff like that. I mean, come on. We, we, we got better things for you to do. We want you to sell, you know, bread door to door or something like that. But that would have been a mistake. That would have been a mistake. And, you know, these guys invented science because they could sit around and think about science. I, I, I think that this, this argument that we should be paying attention to our immediate needs is a very shallow argument. I, I do want to ask you a question, though, and that is sure. why is it that the aliens only want to talk to the residents of Hampshire and Wiltshire uh, by, you know, carving up the, uh, the wheat crop? It's never been clear to me. It's it's an art project. You can't can't ask questions like that. Oh, okay. who, who are you to stand in the way of uh, aliens' creative expressions? Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, it it is interesting that they're only interested in talking to people in the south of England. But you know, maybe, maybe they'll extend extend it. I mean, there was one crop circle I think that did turn up in the American Midwest once, but then they lost interest. It could be the do, high. Do you local not have factors. crop circles in the U.S.? Uh, apparently not. I mean, there was. One that I can remember, but for the rest, our uh, wheat fields go largely unmolested. So I, I, I think, don't know. What I think is. your your fields are probably too big. It's it's an intimidating project. You go for a nice Wiltshire field. It's compact. You may have travelled light years to get here, but uh, a small scale project like that is is manageable. I think. Well, that could be. That could be. I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I really don't know, but I, I suspect you're right. I mean, the American Midwest, where we have all these big wheat fields, you know, you, you might be the only guy you can see. It's 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 pretty empty. Might be a guy. It's like writer's block. You you've got to start small. Yes, yes, I think so. <laughs> All right. Well, um, Seth, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us. You, you've you've written uh, a, a lovely article called "Goodbye Arecibo," which we'll we'll link to uh, in in the show notes. Uh, where else can our listeners find out a bit more about what you do or or, or what you think? Well, uh, obviously, they can go to the SETI Institute's website. It's just SETI.org. And we also do, uh, I hate to mention this, Steve, but we do a podcast every week. It's actually a broadcast as well called Big Picture Science. So people can certainly look that up. It isn't just about SETI. In fact, it's very seldom about SETI, but it's just general science, big picture science. Excellent. I, I can strongly recommend that. And uh, I'm sure given, given that you're broadcast as well as webcast, then uh, the, the those outside our uh our sphere can uh hear it in what a, a few hundred thousand years yeah, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. mostly am unfortunately well, that's not true i take it back <laughs> maybe they will listen to it but by then it'll be too late thanks for that steve thanks for that seth shostak what a wonderful wonderful thing that is i have to say there was a time in the past where i thought 
what I'd really like to do is to get Steve to speak to Elon Musk. And then Arecibo collapsed and I was like, no, sod that. I want Steve to talk to Seth Shostak. So thank you for doing that, Steve, and setting that up. That's a beautiful thing. I, I really enjoyed talking to Seth. Um, we, we, we went over all sorts of stuff, uh, some of which is left on the cutting room floor, but was was equally enjoyable. Um, I uh, I would very much like to talk to Elon Musk, if, yeah. uh, if we can get that one in. What's your first question for Elon Musk? What on earth are you doing, mate? <laughs> it's in every sense yes. of the question. He's doing some wonderful yeah. stuff. He's also doing some bonkers stuff. Uh, some of it's wonderful and bonkers, uh, and some of it's just strange. Dear Elon, please come to you let me put you in a box i'm very confused as to where you sit <laughs> um, so oh, i've got one more thing things to come things to come in the star wars universe what's going to happen to grogu well so he's gone off with luke what happens now i think we'll just have mando going off on adventures maybe grogu gets some training and there'll be a series of events where the two of them team up i do not think grogu is killed at luke skywalker's jedi school by ben solo although if he is that's quite the twist. <laughs> and we're going to see Grogu with the lightsaber. That's what we're going to God, see. God, I hope not. <laughs> this is the whole thing, you know, the whole... This is why I'm not a fan of the prequels, but the whole thing that was laid down in The Empire Strikes Back is being a powerful Jedi is not dependent on your size, you know, because you, the Force flows through you and you don't need to be... a. 10-foot warrior to be a great Jedi. But then if you're waving around a lightsaber, that is entirely dependent on your physical presence. Yeah. So Yoda should never have needed a lightsaber and never have used one. And it's the same with Grogu. I hope we never see Grogu use one. Lightsabers should only have been for Jedis that were not as okay. powerful as Yoda. Okay. Ty, what are you looking forward to most? Of all the announcements... Of all of the, what is it, 15 series and films over the next 10 years or something like that? I'm really looking forward to Patty Jenkins' Rogue Squadron film. I grew up with the Rogue Squadron computer games. Um, my brother had some of the books. And I think it would be great to kind of see an all-out fighter pilot film. I, I think in the little intro video she shot when it was announced, she said her dad was a fighter pilot. Um, she's always wanted to make the best fighter pilot film ever uh top gun maverick comes out next year yeah so you know i don't think they're going to get real x-wings and but it'll be interesting to see what she does like you can only have a certain number of x-wing space battles and the rogue squadron computer games they took place across so many planets you were doing like sneak attacks through canyons you were like doing raids on imperial installations so it's really interesting what she could potentially do with that and i think what Gareth Edwards did on Rogue One with seeing X-Wings, you know, bomb Imperial compounds and also the dogfights in space, he took it to a whole new level that I don't think was really replicated in the main sequel films. So I, it would be, I'm really excited to see what Paddy Jenkins does. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about Andor. Yes, I love Diego Luna and I, I think Rogue One is the best of the new Star Wars films. Mm -hmm. um, so... I'm really interested to see what they do for the Cassian Andor series, which has been filming for a while in London. 
Um, and yeah, something they've been doing a lot in the recent Star Wars films is what was traditionally, you know, very clear good guys versus bad guys is they've been putting a bit of grey in between. So Cassian Andor, we saw him shoot his own informer to prevent him getting captured by stormtroopers. So it'll be interesting to see how dark they go with this rebel spy who will do anything to get the job done. Because as he said, he's been doing this since he was 11 years old. Are we, is the chronology right for us to get more Jyn Erso? Maybe, but I think the first time they meet is in Rogue One. Oh. So let's. I'm thinking of the shows that they've announced. The Bad Batch um, takes place before the main Star Wars films. You could see her pop up in that. I think um, Ming, Ming-Na Wen's character from The Mandalorian is going to show up in that. Um, I think that's animated, though, which is not really what Steve's looking for. No, he just wants to see more... Um, Felicity Jones. Well, George Clooney's film The Midnight Sky's out. She's an astronaut in that. That should scratch his very niche itch. Um, (laughs) As for everything else, no, I think everything else is set post the original films. So, yeah, the other one that's kind of fascinating, but apart from obviously Taika Waitiki um, being involved in a feature film, that's going to be interesting, um, is the, The Acolyte which is by the showrunner of Russian Doll. That's kind of... Which is set at the time of the High Republic. So that's a time that no one's ever seen on film. I think it's just in books because the Old Republic is set even further ahead of that. And you've seen that in computer games such as Knights of the Old Republic. Um, trying to think, because they announced so much. You've got Range of the New Republic, the Ahsoka Tano series, Andor, yeah. um, The Bad Batch... The Acolyte. Am I missing anything? Guys, I'm getting lost. How are we are we about to hit a period where we're running the risk of too much Star Wars? Bad Batch, Boba Fett, Ahsoka, Ranger of the New Republic, Andor, Obi, yeah. Acolyte, Rogue Squadron, all in the next three years. I think Disney are smart enough that they will stagger the releases of all of this. So you're not overwhelmed and they don't dilute their own brand. Um And also, I think it's important to realise that not all these Star Wars shows will appeal to every Star Wars fan. I'm not particularly excited for The Bad Batch. I never really watched The Clone Wars. Clone troopers and their adventures don't really excite me, but I'm interested to see the Ahsoka Tano series and Rangers of the New Republic. And I'm sure they will tie into The Mandalorian for some big you know, spin-off that will probably see them all face down Admiral Thrawn or something. Um, And I think also a lot of them will be limited in their run. So the Book of Boba, I bet that would just be eight episodes. Or the Ahsoka Tano show will just be maybe eight episodes and done. Maybe. I don't know. It all depends what's popular. Um, And, you know, Rosario Dawson's probably a very busy actress. The droids animated thing, that'll probably be very limited. It it gives them enough freedom to see what hits and what doesn't. But I don't expect them to drop five shows all in the same weekend. I'm interested to hear whether Andrew sees that as uh, reason to eject from the shed. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've got no interest in a Star Wars series. What do you reckon, Andrew? I, I, well, it, it's controversial. He says it now. Um, when it comes around, he'll <laughs> watch it. That's how it works. I, I think the, the answer to the question is, are we in danger of having too much Star Wars? I think it's possible, but not so far. I'm totally happy. 
Disney's but, definitely getting a return on their investment. Aren't yeah, they? I mean, lots of people have leveled criticism against Kathleen Kennedy for her handling of the sequel films and not having a, you know, a thought out plot arc over three films and that it feels very patchworky. Um, but, you know, under her guidance, she, she did Rogue One, The Mandalorian. She seems to know what she's doing in terms of what she wants to do with Star Wars. And the woman has had more experience producing great films than we've probably spent watching them. Yeah. You just look at her credentials. It's like, yeah, no, I'd trust this woman to do anything. <laughs> I'll, I'll give him that. I'm, I am very impressed with what Disney have done with mm. Star Wars so far. I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes. And I, I think I'm happy in, in trusting them to uh, use their great powers with great responsibility or whatever the relevant Star Wars quote is. I, there's part of me that thinks the Mandalorian could probably stop now. It doesn't need any more after this. But I trust the showrunners with it. Right, They're doing a beautiful job, so why not give them another season? Maybe that's what's going to happen after one season of um, Ahsoka Tano. Maybe that's what's going to happen. It's just going to be good enough that we'll want more of it. It's interesting to me that Mandalorian hasn't had the kind of um, backlash that the sequels, the prequels did from sections of the fans. It doesn't seem to... I might be that I've just not watched it, not seen it, but it doesn't seem to have upset people. Um, the, the sections of the fan base, the way that those some of those films have done because there's nothing to directly compare it to i think it's been taken as is there's, there's no previous major star wars series so this is kind of set in standard it's a high bar that they set with the prequels and the sequels yeah. um there's parallels to be drawn there's there's there's, there's a that fine line between what's homage and what's just repeating what's gone before um, th there's much more to be critical of because you've got something to compare it to. Whereas The Mandalorian, um, both in its tone and its tech uh, and, and lots of other things, is, is unlike anything else we've really had before. So uh, I, I'm looking forward to comparing Boba Fett to The Mandalorian. Um, th that's going to be a, a fun one. I'm, I'm interested to see where they take that. Um, that's another character that, that has fleeting appearances in the, the main Nonology and and has more backstory elsewhere. I think doesn't he? Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'll find things to critique about the future ones. Let's leave it there. We're going to be returning to Star Wars, the Star Wars uh, universe, with Kevin Scott, who's been writing uh, a series of comics based in the High Republic. So that's coming in 2021. This has been our final episode of 2020, and there does seem to be a certain sentiment that 2020 can get in the bin, and I don't disagree with that at all. But I think there's a bit of a danger to that thinking, because basically all that's happened is that the Earth has gone once more round the sun in its orbit, and that's not magically going to change anything. Things aren't going to change purely because 2020 has become 2021, and we have the power to change things. We have the power to change things by the way that we behave and by the way that we support things. We support the right things and we vote better. I hope we'll see a lot more better voting in future. Things have started to look up recently. Thank you, America. But we need to vote better. 
we need to follow science better. And 2020 may have brought us the coronavirus, the pandemic, the lockdowns and everything, but it's also brought us some of the best science we've seen for a very long time with these vaccinations. Those vaccinations have started, they continue in 2021, and it's science that's going to bring us out of this. So I do wish you all a very happy 2021, a very happy new year. And um, thank you to Ty and Steve for joining me. Thanks, Andrew. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm going to go put some clothes on. (laughs) And thank you very much to Seth Shostak for joining us again for this episode of The Cosmic Shed. We've just got time for Lyra's joke. Why does Leia always know what Luke is getting her for Christmas? I don't know. She can sense his presence. (laughs) Thank you very much for listening. The Cosmic Shed. Science fact. Science fiction. And everything in between. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network. Just one last thing. Congratulations, Ben and Francisco.